0: This is Blue Wire. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode fifteen of the Trench Warfare Podcast, presented by Blue Wire. I'm your host Brandon Thorne. and today we have a special show planned for you. Um, there's there's some news right now in the offensive line world. Today is Tuesday, May 28th, and uh, Richie Incognito just got brought back into the league by the Oakland Raiders. He just signed there he could still possibly get suspended this year but obviously Oakland delayed this signing from when it first broke that they were interested and I would assume that they got some sort of word from the league that they were in favor of and they feel confident that if he were to get suspended it wouldn't be enough to keep him out for maybe a significant part of the season or maybe he's not going to get suspended I'm not sure but um, this is a very controversial signing and for good reason I mean Incognito has a A very troubling past in terms of off the field activity that he's participated in and things that he's done um, that are very concerning uh, especially for a locker room but at this point it's clear that Oakland doesn't really care so much about having a hostile locker room at least in 2019 with Vontaze Perfect, um, Antonio Brown and now Richie Incognito. It's definitely a recipe that could spell disaster for them. But at the same time, these guys are low risk in, in, in a lot of ways because they could just cut them and really not suffer a lot of financial hit from doing that. So, you know, and, and then also some of the reasoning behind this, that at least what's come out in the media, is that the Raiders are really just trying to have a, a, a big 2019 so they can generate some momentum as they move to Las Vegas in 2020 and um you know from what i think mike mayak has said is you know we're we're really trying to build this thing with high character guys but 2019 is sort of an exception right now because we're trying to 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 generate that momentum and to just try to get some wins you know and and maybe even make the playoffs just get get the fans really excited so we can have something to take with us to Vegas you know, aside from just another middling you know or disappointing year, so this is kind of a boomer, a bust year, and it could have some long term effects even after perfect and incognito or cut, assuming that they're not going to be with the team in two thousand and twenty. It could fracture the locker room a little bit long term but um specifically with incognito i I fall kind of in the middle on this one honestly because you know, while I wouldn't necessarily signal out him to add to my team if I was Oakland, especially when you had Coleccio Assembly at left guard, and even though he's gone now, um, at this point, just looking at where they're at, they have a huge hole at left guard. There's some viable options in free agency aside from Incognito, but none of them have the ceiling that he does. He is older, for sure. He's in his mid-30s to late-30s. Um, But he was a perennial Pro Bowl player as recently as 2017 and one of the best guys in the league at his position in 2017 and 2016. So with that being said, they they could significantly upgrade the position at left guard by this signing, you know, even with that risk in terms of the locker room and things like that. So... I understand it from an on-field perspective. It makes a lot of sense. He's much better than any option they have there. And even though he hasn't played football in a year, if he's even eighty percent of what he was in 2017, the Raiders got better, at, you know, on at left guard and in their offensive line. So really, that left side of the line prior to this signing looked really suspect with Colton Miller at left tackle and really, I mean, maybe Denzel Good at left guard. Um, that's not what you want to go into week one with, or even into training camp with. So now you can at least put good Denzel good on the bench and allow him to maybe be a you know a swing interior offensive lineman for you, because um, you don't really want to go into the year with that left side intact. So it's a big upgrade on the field, off the field. We'll see, but that's kind of my take on it. I you know I I, I don't think I would have necessarily done it but now that it's done I'm trying to understand it from their perspective and from a pure football standpoint it makes a lot of sense but obviously they had to overlook a lot of uh, very um, you know questionable and and troubling things off the field to do so so you know it it seems like uh, John Gruden and Mike Mayock for at least 2019 they're, they're not too bothered by that they just want to accumulate talent and see what happens so that's kind of what they're doing and I mean, it makes for an intriguing uh, year, for sure, for Raiders fans. I'm And me, not being a Raiders fan, just being a huge NFL fan, I'm very interested to see how it plays out. And this offensive line just got a lot better and a lot more interesting. So that's good for me, um, just in terms of uh, having another offensive line um, to to really study this year, which I'm going to be doing for sure, assuming that he's going to be starting week one. So... That's that's some interesting news that's going on but really the main thing that's going on this episode for you guys is is I have Damian Woody and I uh coming on the show and I interviewed him and I wanted to interview him because Woody had uh, Damian had an extremely underrated NFL career. He played for 12 years. He had 166 starts. He was remarkably consistent. He only played less than 13 games twice in his 10 years. 12 years, excuse me, played for three different teams, played for the Patriots and won two Super Bowls with them. Um, he's played for Rod Marinelli in, in Detroit. So, I mean, you know, and then he went to the jets, he's played all five positions on the offensive line. So he, he was somebody who I thought could shed a lot of light into the offensive line world and really provide tremendous insight and knowledge. And he did exactly that in this interview. He, um, he really was great. I mean, we we talked about from the beginning in New England, what Bill Bill Belichick imparted into his players to allow so many of them to make a successful transition into the media as they have. So that was really interesting, what he said there. We talked about the toughest guys that he faced in his career. We talked about guys like DeMarcus Ware, uh, Warren Sapp, Um, and we talked about just what it took what it takes for offensive line to be consistent to be available to play as often and as well as he did um and we we talked about a lot of other things as well that are in here so it's about a 25 minute interview and i hope you guys enjoy this one i have another really fun guest uh planned for next week as well already so the guests have been great and because of you we've been able to continue this thing and i i just have a lot of people that want to come on this podcast and talk about offensive lines. So it's, it's exciting. And I just want to thank you everybody for your support. And I really hope you enjoy this interview with Damian Woody. Want more great NFL content? This is Kyle Madsen, co-host of the Candlestick Chronicles podcast. Check out my podcast and other NFL podcasts on the network by searching Blue Wire and iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast players. everybody now I'm joined by Damian Woody I just want to uh, thank him for coming on and doing this Uh, Damian had a really really I think underrated NFL career he played for 12 years and had 166 starts he was a first round pick in 1999 two-time Super Bowl winner went to the Pro Bowl I mean he he really had a good career and uh he has a, a really good career going now in the media as well, but um, a great insight here for offensive line fans, and I just want to welcome to the show Damian. Uh, how you doing?
1: I'm good, Brendan. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. You're somebody that um, I've wanted to talk to you for a while now, actually. Uh, you know, Fortunately, you follow me on Twitter, so I was able to reach out to you. So I'm just excited to talk about offensive line and just your career and and sort of what's going on now at the position?
1: Yeah, man. This is I love talking about uh, ball in the trenches because that's where the game is won. Everyone talks about you know the quarterbacks, and rightfully so, it's the most important position in sports. But anyone that knows anything about football knows that the game is is won and lost in the trenches. So I'm excited to talk a little ball about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And before we get really into the the nuts and bolts of it, I. You know, right now in in the off season is OTAs, and um, I just wanted to get your insight from an offensive lineman's perspective. Um, how much, if if any, I'm sure there was some value there, but how much did you value OTAs in your career? I know it was different back then with a you know a different CBA and stuff like that. But um, what did, what are OTAs good for for offensive linemen, and and how did you approach them?
1: Yeah, um, you know, for me. Uh, I looked at OTAs just kind of familiarizing yourself with any new teammates and um if any you know if there were any coaching changes um getting familiar with different different schemes and uh you know it's just a time of of uh bonding and getting that- chem- getting that chemistry going during the offseason. season i'm a big believer in the only way to play football is to actually play football, and that means in pads. Uh, that's the only way. It's a necessary evil, uh, as, as we like to say. Um, so during training camp, you know, training camp during during the early part of my career was, it was different than training camp is now. I mean, we literally had two and three days when you had, you know, you were hitting. I mean, you were really hitting. And I remember one of my coaches, one of my head, uh, one of my head coaches, Rob Marinelli, he always used to say that, you need to harden your body. And uh, so for me, OTAs is just all about skiing, working on your footwork fundamentals um, without the pads on.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I heard similar things last week when I talked to Ryan Jensen, the center for the bucks, he told me, you know, they have a new coaching staff and everything. So footwork and just kind of adjusting to your line mates, you know, how you're going to work together on things and communicate and stuff like that. So, That makes sense. Um, And, you know, just uh, I think it's really interesting. You know, I I read an article pretty recently, I think, that you were quoted in talking about, you know, your career. You played with the Patriots, the Lions and the Jets. And your time in New England, obviously, I think shaped, you know, a lot of who you were as a player and and things like that. And I I find it so interesting um, that there were so many players from those Patriot teams that have made a successful transition to the media. And, you know, I've I've read that you talk about, you know, Belichick's influence on you guys teaching the game to you as players and, you know, you being able to provide that to the people now as a member of the media. And I just wanted to see if you can give us a couple of examples of where you think Coach Belichick taught you the most about the game.
1: Yeah, so you know, as you know, the game of football is is situational. Coach Belichick used to always tell us people find more ways to lose games than win them. And so during my time in New England, we always everything everything in practice was just about situations because he wanted us to understand the situations when they present themselves. So when in practice, so when we get to games. It would be like it would be like riding a bike. It would be second nature. So I, I don't think I've ever come across a head coach who understood the game the way that and and saw the game the way that Coach Belichick um, saw the game. The way he put put us in pressure situations in practice, different situations, situational football um, type thing in practice. I mean, he would just grill us again and again and again. In practice and in and in meetings to the point where when these things unfolded in games, no one would panic. Everyone would just have a, everyone would just be even keel when these things happen, and that allowed us in pressure situations because we all know half the games are started by a touchdown left, um, and then you know then the percentages you know you know get down to a field goal left. So. And the game really comes down to situational football. And because of the way that Coach Belichick taught taught us the game, put us in pressure situations in practice, we were able to find ways to win games rather than lose them.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. It it definitely seems like you need an extremely knowledgeable coaching staff and, and a head coach obviously to be able to implement those things and come up with those situations and be able to do it in a realistic fashion so I I, you know I think that's partly why I you know when when teams and when us in the media are studying successful teams we look at the Patriots but we can't really compare many teams to them because they're sort of a unicorn because Belichick is I think just such a you know special mind you know in terms of the game but that's that's fascinating stuff and um, You know, I wanted to, I mean, for you as well, you know, I, I just think about it from your perspective, because you at this time you were playing center, you know, with the Patriots. So obviously you have more of a mental load, I think, than the rest of your offensive line teammates. So for you, probably especially, it, it was beneficial, I would imagine.
1: Oh, absolutely, because um you know, I, as a center, you have to be able to see. I'm gonna see the field. You're you're the quarterback of the offensive line. You have to be able to see the field like the quarterback, and you have to help make adjustments, uh, whether it be protections in the run game. So, just having you know not only Coach Belichick teaching you the game, but then you know specifically for me, having in my opinion the best offensive line coach in history, Dante Scarnecchia, you know, uh, you know showing you know showing you the film. And teaching you things day in and day out, I just felt like I was in the in the best position a, a you know a player could be because I'm getting a wealth of knowledge from two two men that have reached the pinnacle over and over again throughout their career. So uh, I felt well equipped, you know, my, early on in my career. And one thing that they not only Coach Belichick but uh, Dante Starnec did was. They cross train me as well as far as other positions are concerned because you have to be able to in a pinch, you know, in, in a pinch, be able to switch positions when you have injuries, and that was one of the things that they introduced to me early on in my career. Was you know, yeah, you're a first round center, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have you take reps at tackle. We're gonna have you take reps at guard, and so when these you know when these things played out, I remember my, I think it was my last year in New England, first game, I left guard, Mike Compton broke his broke his ankle, and Coach Dante comes up to me and asks me, you know, would I mind switching to left guard? I said, no problem at all, because why? Because I had been cross-trained, you know, by Dante Skarniecki throughout the years, and it was just an easy transition, and and uh slid me to left guard and it was a seamless transition. So it's little things like that. And there's other teams that do it, but but with the Patriots they they took it upon right from the beginning, uh, even as like I say, even though I was a first first round center, that they were gonna cross train me at other positions, um, to make sure that all bases are covered, you know, regarding, you know, potential injuries down the road.
0: Yeah, and you know you see that even to today. I know Joe Tooney, you know the left guard. He's getting a lot of reps at left tackle right now because Isaiah Wynn isn't available. So you know am and he played left tackle in college as well. But you see it even now, you know, with New England and um, other teams as well, like you mentioned. But I would imagine that them doing that, you know, because you played all five positions throughout your career. Um, you know, your last several years with the Jets, you played tackle. So I would imagine that what New England did early on in your career actually extended your career to to some extent.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And, and, um, you know, most, most guys, they slide in, you know, they don't slide out. So, you know, and so for me, I was, you know, obviously, you know, blessed athletically, but because of the the early cross training that the coaching staff of New England did and and quite honestly, uh, in Detroit, actually, um, you know, they were a big part of me um, playing right tackle uh, with the Jets because when I was playing right guard in in Detroit, um, you know, I one of our one of our tackles wasn't uh, playing well, and and I actually got I actually got benched for a, for a period of time, and so I was playing and I yeah out for like, a, for like a couple games. And so and so, <clears throat> this was Rob Marinella, and it was actually the best thing that probably ever happened in my career. And he put me on the scout team at right tackle. And so in practice, I'm literally kicking everybody's butt in practice. And so Mike Marsh comes up to me and says, you know what? We're going to push you at right tackle. You're doing so well in practice at right tackle – we're gonna we're gonna start your right tackle. My first game was in was um, at the Metrodome in, in Minnesota, and anyone anyone who's been to the Metrodome knows that that place was one of the loudest stadiums in the National Football League. So my very first game was you know at right tackle was against Minnesota, and literally that propelled me. Th- those um, I think it was like the last seven games. Of my last year in Detroit, that propelled me to to be to play right tackle for the New York Jets. So, I'm not only indebted to New England, but indebted to the coaching staff in Detroit for the actions they did that kind of reinvigorated my career um, at that point.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I. I didn't know a whole lot about your time in Detroit, but I saw that I think you were there for four years. And, um, you know, and I think about back back then in the, you know, the, the, the 90s, 2000s, uh, well, really 2000s, um, you know, just some of the competition. I had on Willie Anderson recently, uh, longtime Bengals right tackle, and we were talking about the level of competition from defensive linemen then and now, and he was really – I thought this was really interesting, and I, I think, you know, I agree with it for the most part. Pass rushers back then, you know, were a lot bigger just generally, um, but they weren't necessarily less athletic. You know, a lot of the time, there were still guys out there. Like during, I think, of two thousand seven. You know, when you played some tackle with the Lions, I'm just looking at who was at the Pro Bowl. Guys like Jason Taylor, OCU Minioria, um, you know, Jared Allen, and just all these guys that were extremely athletic but bigger guys then. Would would you say that the competition then? Um, just in terms of who you saw at tackle, even at guard, is there s- certain guys that stand out to you? And, and what do you think about the difference in the line of scrimmage play and just the level of competition from then and now? Is there any stark differences? And, and just, you know, I just was curious on what your your viewpoint on that would be.
1: Yeah, listen, I um, my I remember my, my last year at Detroit, um, when I was, you know, when I made the transition to right tackle, literally I had a lineup of, I had Jared Allen, I had DeMarcus Ware, I had Sean Merriman at the time who was balling. I mean, it it was like literally, it it seemed like every week I was going against an elite pass rusher. And I mean, one that stood out to me, they were all, all good, but DeMarcus Ware was just phenomenal. Just a phenomenal pass rusher because, first of all, he had such long arms. Um, and he just had a variety of, of rush moves. He was strong, he was quick, his get off was tremendous. Uh I always felt like he was one of the best pass rushers of, of this generation. I don't know if he gets talked up enough, but I got a tremendous amount of respect for uh Demarcus, DeMarcus Ware. Um, but yeah, these, these pass you know, the pass rushers, um, when I was playing, these guys were big, they're you know fast just as like these guys are now. Um and I feel like they had more of a variety of rush moves. Um I don't know if that's you know, I don't know if that's becoming a lost art where these guys had multiple moves, but you know, even when I played against Jason Taylor, Jason Taylor had multiple multiple moves that he could throw his way. The long arm, long arm over, he could do a lot of different things. And um you know, it made you really work on your craft and 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 come into a game with a game plan. You know that was the biggest thing is when you study these guys. Like you gotta come. You can't just oh I'm gonna just go out there and settle on them and then that be that. No, you have to come with a game plan. Okay, how do I want to uh, how do I want to come at them initially? Do I want to <clears throat> do I want to jump set them? Do I want to flash my hands and get him to flash his? You know, doing all these different type of sets, man. To to kind of throw these guys off. I mean, let's be honest, these guys are more athletic than us, you know? So when you got guys that are more athletic, the are skilled in the way they rush the passing, you got to be able to do things to kind of get them off their kilter, man. So that was really the fun part of it.
0: And. Just going back to the interior a little bit, I just wanted to see if you had a name or two of guys that when you were on the interior that you knew when you faced off against them, it was just going to be a fight for four quarters, somebody that you respected a lot. Is there anybody that jumps out to you that you had sort of just a couple battles with?
1: Oh, yeah, man. They were they were a bunch of guys. I mean, you know, I would say the biggest guy that stood out to me was Warren Sapp. I mean, because, you know, Sapp was, I mean, he was, First of all, his get off was incredible. He was, you know, he was so strong, and he had leverage because he wasn't the tallest of guys. So he could get off, and he would line up in that wide, that wide three, almost a four, eye, and he would just come off the, he would just come off the ball, and you know, you pair him with Simeon Rice, who's flying, screaming, screaming off the edge, and they're running games, and it could make it, it. It created a long, hard day to going against going against that group of guys. Uh, so one sap was, was one. Um I got a lot of work in New England just on my own team. I mean people forget how, how yeah, people forget how good um the Patriots defense was early on. I mean we had you know Richard Seymour and then you know at the end of my Patriots tenure had, you know, Ty Warren who was really good and you know Mike Dravel, and McGinnis, all those guys could rush. All of you guys were strong, big, physical um, players. So a lot of times I got really good work in practice to the point where I felt the game was almost a breeze. That's how good, that's how good it was in practice. And ideally, that's what you want to have. You want, you want practice to be harder than the games.
0: Yeah. Was, was Ted Washington there during your time at all?
1: Ted was there, Big Ted was there. And, you know, funny thing is, when I, when I first got drafted to New, to New England, uh, my head coach was Pete Carroll my first year. And the reason, and the reason that I got – the reason I was drafted was because Buffalo was running the 3-4 with Ted Washington in the middle. And so I was the first center drafted in the first round in the decade primarily for that reason because of Ted Washington so we used to always laugh and talk about that um you know during our time in New England
0: yeah I remember watching when I was younger obviously Ted Washington I mean just being maybe the biggest guy I've ever seen on the field and just completely immovable and back then I mean I the interior play just doesn't get talked up enough just in general you know with the offensive line and I mean, there's so many guys that I think too, back then, like great oh, nose tackles. You know, like Casey Hampton and Jamal Williams. Oh my
1: gosh! Oh my gosh! I have. I mean, you know, I had I had some battles with Casey Hampton, um, particularly. In, you know, we had an AFC Championship game uh, where we beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think they were 15 and one. This was back in 2001. They were 15 and one. Their defense was lights out, but Casey Hampton was was tremendous. Shoot, I went against Chester McLaughlin, who was he was one of the more hot and cold players in the league, but when he wanted to turn on, I don't think I've gone against anyone in my career
0: who who
1: just had uh just the combination that he had.
0: Wow, yeah. I didn't know much about him, but I know the name. That's that's a really good one for sure for, for uh, Oh yeah, he was he was
1: I mean, he was special. When I said he big and he was special, like his for a guy that was, I mean, he was three fifty, three sixty. His get off was incredible, incredible get off. Just a tremendous athlete, and like I said, he was kind of a hot and cold player. But when he want when he wanted to turn on, there was really nothing you could do about it.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool to to hear that insight. I mean. Man, yeah, we could we could keep going on that because there's other guys too, like Leroy Glover, and just just so many guys. But, um, but yeah, the, the the next thing I wanted to to ask you about, I mean, just for your career, you know, when when you look back at it, and just one thing that stands out to me from afar looking at it is just how consistent you were able to be. I mean, I, you had less than 13 starts just twice in your 12 years, and for the most part, you were starting 16 games a year. What do you attribute that to the most and um just could you just talk a little bit about that because i know that for offensive linemen being available is such a a point of pride and something so important to the position so what what allowed you to be so consistent
1: yeah i think it's uh i think it's a couple things i think number one the good lord just gave me you know uh just you know protected me out there some um a lot of it had to do with um with uh the fact it's a mentality when you play an offensive line um, and I think you've probably heard this before but the offensive line group is different from any other group on the team we're like a team within a team and so you know as the offensive lineman you can't be you, you can't miss a game that's just not it's like not acceptable there was guys who would be injured I mean broken this or torn that but we always had the mindset of, okay, just throw a brace on it. Throw a brace on it and just roll. I mean, I have had a broken hand and, you know, okay, you put a ball cast on it and you go play with one one hand. Or, you know, you torn a little bit to your knee. Okay, throw a brace on it and you just go out there and battle. And that to me it's a mentality that, you know, that I had and along with a lot of offensive linemen that – you know what? I gotta be there for my brothers. You can't miss a game.
0: Right. No, yeah, that's that's good. I that's part of the <clears throat> excuse me, the reason I I love studying offensive lines so much is because of how unique it is and that that mindset it takes to play the position, I think, is really special and and should be talked about more, but that's, you know, kinda why I'm doing this. But yeah, that's 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 really cool and and, and the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is you've made such a I think just a successful transition into the media. You're very engaging on Twitter. Um, obviously, not afraid to express your opinion. You're very knowledgeable um, about the game. I know we talked about the Patriot influence, but how how do you think you're, you've been able to transition to you know the point you have in the media? Is there certain uh, advice that you would give out there to other people that are other players that are trying to transition, but just in people in general that, that want to have more of a, a space in the media?
1: Well, I always say that you can't fool you can't fool people. Number one, okay, that's the one thing. People with everything out here and all of the wealth of information, people are more knowledgeable than ever. So it's hard to fool people. That's number one. Number two, I just try I just try to be authentic. I, I'm just going to be me. Um, I'm not going to try to be something that I'm not. I'm going to be me. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell it like it is. And if you like it. Cool. If you don't like it, then that's fine too. But I just found that that people really respond to me when I'm just authentic and just you know being who I am and and uh, and just sharing the knowledge and stories and and you know as far as the fans are concerned, if I can help the fans understand the game better, then to me my job is done and I just get more interaction when fans like, man. You just told me something, you just gave me a nugget that I did not know. And that's that's all I strive for in the media. I want to give I want to pull the curtain back and give people something that they just they don't they either don't have access to or they just don't know. And that's what I strive to do. And I feel like I've done that, you know, over the years now.
0: Yeah, absolutely, um, that, that's for sure. You've been an awesome guy to follow on Twitter, uh, watch, obviously, on TV, and um, you've given us a lot of nuggets that, you know just in this 20 or so minutes that you've spent with us, so I, I appreciate it, and everybody you can follow Damian on Twitter, at Damian Woody, and uh, Damian, just thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it.